Welcome to the Best Boss Ever podcast. I'm your host, Christine LaPerriere, president of Leader in Motion. On this show, we're going to gossip about the best boss you ever had. We're going to hear stories about things that they did that helped you feel valued, helped you feel engaged, and really inspired you. We want to hear about the bosses that changed the way you look at everything. If you want to hear more, join me at christinelaperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip. Today, I am bringing on Joshua, and I'm going to have Joshua introduce himself in a minute. But yet again, what I really love is that as we have started to grow a stronger presence with The Best Boss Show, there are people that are listening to the show and catching the idea of it, and it's inspiring them to think about what their best bosses are. And that's how Joshua and I got connected. So Josh, thank you so much for being on the show. I'll hand it over to you so you can do a quick introduction, and then we'll get started. Thank you, Christine. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about this. I went down a trip of memory lane thinking about best bosses, so I'll share some stories. I've been a leadership coach for the last 25, 26 years, psychologist by training before that, researcher, and most of what I do is leadership coaching, and I love that work. And when I'm not doing that, I'm teaching mindfulness and mindful leadership. And so I get to do stuff that I love and help people grow and change so that's that's a joyful thing. But I didn't get there kind of on my own. There was people, best bosses, and mentors, maybe we'll get to, that really helped me develop the professional confidence and skill set that I have. So very grateful for them. Amazing. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and dive in. I'll give you the question. Who are the best bosses, I'll say, that you've experienced and or learned something really transformational from? The first one that came to mind, his name is Jerry, and it struck me from the very first meeting, my first interview, he created the safe space for me and showed this incredible interest in me. And I ended up sharing so much more about myself and my personal life that I intended. He opened me like a can opener. And he was a professional interviewer. I mean, that was his thing. He was an assessor. And that's what he ended up teaching me was how to assess leaders. But I was not prepared for that. And I just thought, oh, my gosh, what have I done? (laughs) I said, I'm never going to get this job. And yet, sharing all this personal stuff about my own spiritual journey and and starting to meditate and stuff, actually, he was very interested and thought that was great. So, So I didn't flop. He hired me and subsequently taught me to trust my intuition and my gut using that incredible supportive essentially loving stance that he had. I didn't think of it at the time, but as I think back on it now, that's really what he was expressing. He was able to express that kind of loving presence for you. I love the fact that you mentioned he was a professional interviewer. So it's like he was able to ask the questions that really got to the heart of who you are. So it was the questions and even not even just the question. It was just that he would listen. He was a really good listener. And, you know, as I started thinking, and I always think about principles, what, what, you know, what are the themes? Empathy and listening are top of my list. Yeah. Because that showed his support for me and interest in me. It wasn't just, okay, I'm going to tell you and teach you because he had years of that he could give me. But what I really took away was his belief in me. That started with the next, the biggest assignment we started with is he asked me to research the best assessment tools out there. He had been using the same tools for like 10, 15 years and they were old. I mean, he loved them and they were like his 
um, you know, magic crystal ball. But he wanted me to go find him the new things. And I just thought, this is wild. And I dove into it, brought them to him, and he was very open to experimenting with them. And even, learn, you know, I ended up teaching him hypnosis. I mean, he's just so open, even though he had years of experience and great skills, he was open to learning from me. So what I took away was, I must have something. I, I was this graduate student. I knew nothing and felt I had no kind of things to add. And he showed me that I had tremendous things to add. And that, so my confidence just blossomed. My professional identity blossomed. So that's really what I got from him. Wow. I love that. Love that story. So that was Jerry. So then kind of as you start thinking, what other bosses created that impact for you? Well, the same one actually going further back into college, research named Christy, she was teaching me how to do research. And I'd never done research and how to publish that research. But as I think about it, it was the same incredible sense of loving support that I got from her. It was just the sense of you know, interest in me, but also, you know, I could mess up, but there was a sense of it's okay. Compassion might be the word, right? And so just thinking about that, it really brings tears to my eyes how much there was this holding for me. And so, you know, Christy and Jerry both both gave me that. And then, you know, interesting. So Jerry was looking for a successor and what is kind of one of the few good examples of succession planning. He actually retired. And I took over his seat in that consulting practice doing leadership assessment. And what I then had was a new boss, essentially his partner at the time. I'll call him Richard for for sake of anonymity, but very different kind of boss, but incredibly transformative for me. So not not this kind of sweet, loving presence. And so I, I learned from him how to coach by coaching side by side with him. So this was not like Okay, we debrief it later. Well, we did debrief, but we would coach people together. And so I'd go to visit clients with him. And that was just incredible because he was right to not send me alone and watching him do it. So there's modeling there, how to coach people, how to build relationships with clients, how to run a business. He knew that much better than Jerry did. And the other thing that I was thinking about, Christine, was so amazing. And I wrote about this actually when I wrote my book years ago. He would interrupt himself to listen to me. So we'd be talking and I would take in a breath of air as if I'm going to speak. And he would, he would interrupt him. So he would stop. And I feel bad because like, I actually wanted to hear what he was going to say. And I, you know, I had no, no experience. I, you know, there's nothing important that I was going to say. And I asked him to explain this. And he said, well, when I'm speaking, I'm not learning. And it was just so powerful to me. Like, yes, he too wanted to learn, even if it wasn't important. What he taught me was Wow, I should shut up and listen better. So that was that was Richard and really learned again about business and building relationships with clients and also about listening in a different way. Can I get you to even expand a little bit about what it was like to sit next to him as he was coaching? So obviously you didn't really know a lot about coaching at that moment in time. And so you're sitting and you're observing him. Tell me, like, what did he do? well as a coach like what what were the things that you started to pick up on you know all of us want to learn how to be great coaches you know and again i'd start with that listening he was a great listener even though he was impatient and had add <laughs> he actually he reminded me he took a pad of paper with him and whenever he's on the phone or with a client in person he would be doodling he learned that to quiet his mind and to focus and he would write notes about what the person was saying, but he'd also draw pictures and stuff. And you know, so 
he would use that to help him focus. And so, you know, as much as he had incredible expertise and could do the mentoring and telling thing, he didn't. And so what I learned from him was how to really help people from the inside out, bring their insights forward and not be the, the guru in the room, but somebody else really get to where they wanted to go. So, so that was incredible. The other thing that I realized I, I learned from him, he, he had this expression, he would say, when I give to the universe, it gives back. I, mean, I love that he's one. He's a really hard-nosed business person, but he had this philosophy of giving and that it wasn't just about, okay, go, go, take, take, you know, it was about giving to clients. And when you give, you get back. Giving things away for free was his philosophy and what I learned. How does he build relationships with clients? He gave his time, his attention, his expertise for free. And he built a very successful business. I love that catchphrase. I feel like it's a it's a hard one to remember sometimes when you're in the business world. So when you bring that one forward, you just relax a little bit, you know? Well, it's hard to trust it, but it is true. And I've tried to live that, you know, just being there for people when they're between jobs or have gotten fired or going through a tough moment. They can't pay us as consultants, but, but they need support. And it's a relationship. It's not a transaction. That's something I learned from him and, and from Jerry and Christy, too. Um, so that's, yeah. Amazing. I really, really like that story. You know, I know that we were we were talking as we were getting the show set up one of the things that this best boss ever conversation also brings up for you is some memories about the not best boss, the one that wouldn't win the title. (laughs) Yeah. And, you know, I think it's about ego because that, that boss was always competing with me to try to make himself feel good, to put himself up. And one time I'll never forget. We, I actually introduced him to a client of mine and so a group of clients that came to the meeting and he was putting me down in front of my own clients and it was just like, I could not believe what I was hearing. And so, you know, when somebody's ego is more important than the client or me, it's just, it's incredible what that will do in terms of destructiveness. And so, you know, I, I left that relationship and, you know, that was really why, because want to have a boss competing with me it's the opposite of what i was talking about, about before with with jerry and christian and rich where they really were kind of putting me up and showing me that my expertise mattered and it wasn't about that they didn't need the ego they had kind of managed to develop their own confidence to that point that they didn't have to compete but this other fellow you know wasn't there so he was competing and <laughs> I didn't learn from that. Yeah. And when you feel like, you know, I think psychological safety is a big, you know, hot topic these days, but the minute that you think, you know, you're kind of going into the office and all of a sudden, like you're competing with somebody sitting right next to you or sitting above you, you know, there's nothing psychologically safe about that. And if I make the transfer to people that I've managed and I haven't managed that many, but when I'm developing somebody I'm trying to do that. It's basically getting my own ego out of the way. If it's my emotional need, if I'm critiquing something they've written or done, you know, is it my need to show that I'm better? What's going on here? So, so can I ask you a question? I personally have done an intense amount of training. Kabbalah was probably the best training that I did 
in helping me really identify the difference between ego and connection to something bigger. But I'm very mindful of, just like you said, where my ego sits sometimes when I'm interacting, because you're right. The minute I can move that out of the way, goes back to being about the person in front of me, right? You know, for all of us, it rears its ugly head. So question for you, how did you, you know, how have you grown to spot and manage ego in yourself and others you know, in your journey. I think that's a core of what we're trying to do when we're coaching leaders is help them manage their ego and manage their emotional needs. One thing that we do a lot in in coaching is giving feedback, right? So gathering 360 feedback and helping people be aware of their impact. That's one place it comes out that they care about my clients. They don't want to impact people negatively around them. And so they pay attention to that, that disconnect between intention and impact. So that's outside in. Inside out is being aware, and you mentioned mindful. So mindfulness is a huge tool for me in helping myself and others be first sane and centered and grounded, right? So first thing is if I'm stressed out, you know, if I greet the kids at the door of my wife, I'm not giving them my best self. If I'm harried and fellow, I've got to spend a lot of time managing my own anxiety and stress so that I'm my best self. So that's the first grounded, centered, settled. Number two is then, can I make the intention to give and care and ask about how am I, you know, how am I entering this conversation? Is it with curiosity and empathy and listening, or is it with an agenda to fix or get off my chest of frustration? What's going on for me emotionally? So that's a, a mindfulness of emotion. So we often think of mindfulness as a mind thing, but it's not just being clear in our heads, it's being positive and centered in our hearts. So heartfulness is in some ways a better word for it. I think that's a really good distinction, right? Moving the energy down here versus always up here, you know? Great teacher who passed away last year, Thich Nhat Hanh, who used to talk about the, you know, the longest journey is that you know many miles from our head to our heart. Absolutely. And this sounds so soft, right? So our clients, Christina, hard-edged practical people, and they're like, oh, you know, Heart, love, what are you talking about? But it actually, and you mentioned psychological safety. The reason that's coming in is because we've overshifted, right? Too much logic and head in business, and oh, we don't have room for emotion. And now we're realizing emotional intelligence and safety. Well, where do we get that? We will get that by working on our own ability to be understanding and empathic and compassionate. And those are things that can be learned. Well, and I think, you know, to your point, the leaders that I work with want that. I think a lot of people feel that their authenticity is kind of cut off right at the end of their executive function. (laughs) So it's like, as long as I'm in, you know, you know, using the logical part of my brain and I'm powering through problem solving, like they feel like that's what the company wants out of them. And then the minute that they move into an emotional state, they're kind of like, you know, that's not welcome here. And what I've actually learned is culture is not built on executive function alone, right? It's built on the human connection. And, you know, we talk about engagement, right? Like Gallup's, you know, one of Gallup's questions, I have a best friend at work, you know, and I always say that. And that one actually is interestingly enough, one of the biggest predictors of whether somebody's going to stay at an organization. That's not, you know, executive function, right? <laughs> That's not ego. <laughs> And, and I've been thinking a lot about executive function recently. And just if people don't know that term, that's planning, organizing, focusing. And kids most need coming up and executives need it too. 
And that's what, you know, mindfulness gives us. And yet it's not the whole enchilada, as you say, Christine, it's half at best and culture is built on emotional and safety and, you know, underlying values. So absolutely. You know, you also I want to come back to mentors, Christine, because you mentioned mentors and I, I was thinking about best bosses. And then I thought of somebody who wasn't really a boss, but was incredibly pivotal for me as a mentor. And if I think about that, there's some, there's some similarity to what I got uh, in that sense of loving support, but she was also tough and would not hold back. So you mentioned head and heart, you know, I think it's a balance. She would give me blistering feedback and not, you know, (laughs) no, no love in that moment. It felt hard and harsh, but I needed to hear it. And so I learned that part of things too, that it's not all about the warm and fuzzy. It's how do you really be straight? And and there's some people who talk about straight talk and, you know, that kind of discipline, being brutally honest. But it's within the context of a loving, supportive relationship where, you know, it's not about, again, I'm going to take you down because I feel like it or I can, with the idea that I'm going to help you grow. You know, I have this nickname for exactly what you're talking about. And I call it the broccoli between your teeth conversation because, you know, what I've learned from doing over 50 of these best boss interviews, feedback always comes up as a topic, right? And whether that's from a mentor or a boss or somebody that cares. But what I always say is the broccoli between your teeth feedback is like, hey, you have broccoli between your teeth, (laughs) like stop what you're doing, (laughs) you know? And I'm doing that not because I have ego or I enjoy that you look like a fool right now, or I enjoy that everybody, you know, I'm doing that out of sheer compassion for you. But if I don't give, you know, I'm not going to say like, um, excuse me. Well, you know, and sometimes like, you know, it's like, I don't, I'm not worried about your feelings in the moment because I'm actually protecting the bigger you and your success. And so I think of it as like, How do we give feedback that, just like you said, I I hear this all the time, people that make a big impact, it's not the ones that gently gave feedback that, you know, didn't disrupt the apple cart or didn't have you, you know, you had no, you know, you didn't have a feeling when you heard that feedback. Most of us, when we get that tough feedback, it's like, ouch, but then you get so much from that. (laughs) Right. And so, so many things you're saying is important. You know, because people hear coaching and they think feedback. And yes, feedback is part of coaching, but it's a small part. A larger enchilada is, do we create a safe space for this person to grow and think for themselves? And then when we give feedback, it's in a container. And that feedback, right, does not protect that person from their feelings. I actually learned that from another mentor we could talk about. But but that's so pivotal. We so often do each other harm by trying to protect each other from our feelings. Can't protect each other from our feelings. And the best way we can sometimes help people is to be straight. But with that sense of support for the person, it's not brutal for the sake of hurting or being brutal. And just because like, I can't think of a better way to say it. It's with the gesture and the intention to help. Right. I really value when I hear those stories, you know, like I can think of, you know, a time that I got, tough feedback from a mentor, same exact thing. And she said, you know, while I was watching you facilitate in front of a room, 
you use self, she goes, you know your stuff, but you use self-deprecating humor to the point in which it's annoying. And I was like, ooh, like, but you know, she was right. I was on this mission to try to not look too egotistical in front of the room. And so I was like treating myself like I was stupid in front of the room. And she's like, there's no need for that. And it was like, I mean, I felt like I had, I was embarrassed by the, you know, the tough moment, but I will never forget how thankful I am. She could have saved me years of doing something that nobody else would ever had the heart to tell me. It's a great story. So if we are really open and want feedback, how do we get it? Right. She had a sense that she could give it to you, but so many people project that they're not interested. Right. You know, even before you say anything, you can see the defensiveness coming up. So showing that you're open and interested, the easiest way is to ask people for feedback, ask colleagues for feedback. You know, there's coaches who made their living on that principle, just ask for feedback. And it's really powerful. And the first time, yeah, you know, I'll never forget when I was writing my book, the first time I had a developmental editor, his job was to give me feedback. I thought, oh, this is great. He's going to give me. So I, I asked him for feedback. And he said, oh, just keep doing what you're doing. I said, okay, great. I'll do that. But I asked him for feedback again a month later. And he said, yeah, you, you could change this a little bit here and there. I was like, oh, great. Thank you so much. And, and I asked him for feedback a third time and a month again after that. And he said, you know what? You really need more stories. You need to put more stories throughout the book. And it's like, oh my gosh, this is huge. It's going to take me another six months to write, but that's so important. And it was, but I had to ask him, and it was his job. I had to ask him right. three times. And think of even the time wasted, right? By you not seeing that challenge or issue or opportunity earlier, right? And so I, I agree with you. It's hard to hear at the time, but honestly, it's the biggest gift. And I hear that as a theme in almost over half of these interviews, people remember the person that gave them the tough feedback that once they got their broccoli out from between their teeth, <laughs> they were like, wow, it, the show's going so much better now, you know, <laughs> like, and they felt more confident in front of the room because somebody did actually point out that embarrassing thing. Even you probably felt better writing that book when you finally got that candid feedback. Well, yeah, because it rung true. It was painful because I'd written a lot to that point that I had to then rework you see there's going to be a ton of work ahead in the next few chapters. And it's not easy for me to write and tell stories, but you've been great to <laughs> draw them out. But you know, so it was painful in the moment, but so helpful longer term, right? Any last words that you want people to hear today? I really appreciated your stories. I love the examples of the couple different bosses that came to mind, even though they were all kind of, they had different ways that they impacted you. Just tell me a little bit if there's anything you really want leaders that are listening right now who are trying to figure out how to keep raising the bar, what do they need to take away today? Well, we've talked about, I, and I'm about to write an article about this, that empathy is the supremacy principle. Empathy and listening right behind it. And then curiosity. We talked about managing our egos and our emotional needs, and we talked about mindfulness, being present, paying attention, guiding your own attention and guiding the attention of your team, right? So you went, okay, I need to be focused. But actually, as a leader, a huge part of our job is focusing the attention of our teams. People talk about alignment and strategic directionalism, but what does that come down to? It's that everybody's attention is focused in the same direction. And you can do that if you get a hold of your own first and you can pay attention to others. 
I mean, I think your point on empathy and listening, I always say curiosity to me. I kind of use it as like love in motion because in the world of leadership, we don't use the word love very much. It's like we kind of almost in some ways don't have permission to, to go there. But if I can challenge somebody to move to curiosity, like a genuine curiosity, if you think about it, when you've ever felt loved by another person, they were genuinely, deeply curious, so much that they wanted to listen to you, so much that they wanted to understand you. And a friend of mine recently was saying that he he's a leader of 100 people, IT technology team. He was saying, you know what that gets you to curiosity is humility, which gets us back to managing your ego. So you can't just say, well, you should be humble. But to be humble, we have to get our ego out of the way. Once you can be humble then you can be curious. I love that. And you know what? I want to tell one more thing about Jerry, which I just thought was amazing. I, I, he had retired at this point. I was at a conference and we were asked to share around a large round table about the best mentor boss we'd ever had, going back to your podcast. And this other person was sharing and it sounded, I was like, that sounds like Jerry. So I went up to him in a break and I said, who was that boss you were talking about? He said, oh, yeah, it's Jerry. I said, I, that was my best boss, too. And so we compared notes and realized. So it wasn't just me that Jerry had supported. And this other colleague had the same experience. Oh, that is fantastic. Like, what a riot. Like, what do you think of that? That is so interesting. So there were, and, and as I learned, he had mentored many other people as well. So it's it was not personal and it was personal. It felt like he was just a special thing for me. But then I realized, wait, he's doing this. He's sprinkling this pixie dust with others too. <laughs> of course, Which is so career. cool. And I mean, to me, that's where if you're really authentically being who you're being, then any person that interacts with him is getting that experience. So that's pretty cool that he, he impacted, you know, people that all knew him or were around him and being led by him in the same way. That's, that's, to me, that's like the top of the bar. Yeah. How do you make people feel? You know, mantra and leadership, right? How do you make people think, feel, and act? But the feeling piece is underrated to your point earlier. So are we thinking about how we make people feel post our interactions with them? And what I took away, you know, as I think about Jerry and Christy and Rich and Karen, mostly on the love side, it's how they made me feel. It made me feel good about myself. I'm keeping that as my last little nugget of wisdom that I'm going to put this up on my wall here. How do you make people think, feel, and act? I think that you nailed it. Those three are so mission critical, but the feel is always the one that everybody skips. The think, we feel like we can talk our way into it. Act, we can just tell people what to do. But it feel... Work, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't work because we jump over the feel piece. If we connect and make them feel good and align with us, and that we have a vision where we want to take you, and you're inspired to go there with me as a leader, then you'll act. And especially today, right? Maybe 40 years ago, different generation, people would more be dutiful. Today's, you know, people coming up, they don't want to just do it because you tell them. They want to do it because they're inspired and they feel like they want to do it. Absolutely. I think that is an awesome closing remark to make everybody reflect on how are we all, you know, making people think, feel, and act when we're interacting with them. Amazing. Thank you, Joshua. This was a great interview, and I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Wonderful talking with you. 
If you want to hear more, join me at christinelaperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip.